To start this morning, uh, I'll explain the title first, uh, called Calling Myself. And uh, just because it's so cryptic and we have no idea where it's going, I'll give you a hint. Uh, I went through the Gospel of Ramakrishna and, uh, and the, uh, uh, the Great Master and pulled out uh, all of the times that Thakur talks to himself or gives an instruction to himself, or that he sings a song that gives him instruction. And uh, I did it more or less just as an experiment to kind of see what it would, what was there, what we would find. And it actually turned out to be pretty interesting. So I compiled it into this talk this morning. And uh, so we'll investigate that and see, uh, see where it goes. I, there's a lot of really great stuff there, actually. I'm pretty excited about it. But before we start, I want to read my chosen Hafiz poem this morning. Hafiz is a Sufi poet, as you know, from the, I don't know, sometime around the 1200s, I think. I should check that out. It's either the 12 or 1500s, but I don't know that it's a big deal. I am a golden compass. Watch me whirl. To the east and to the west, to the north and to the south, in all directions, I will true your course toward laughter and unity. To everywhere I will deliver enlightenment on the backs of camels, birds, and strong pilgrims. In every country I will carry the holy names and dance and dance. I am a golden compass. Watch me sing and spin illustrious strands of lyrics and truth. I am a divine agent, your passage to light. Your ticket may need my stamp. My foot and verse are now ecstatic and mid-air. Just place your head beneath our leaping arch. We will fall upon you. Watch me whirl into nothingness, your fears and your darkness. Just keep tossing them onto my golden plate. I am a holy instrument, always tuned by God, who lives beyond every dimension. I have been lifted drunk off the floor in a magnificent tavern. Now at at my seat upon divine love, I gaze at everything with brilliant, clear eyes. I can so easily lean my cheek across this small table of time and space and let you touch my beautiful, laughing, woolly beard. <laughs> that's the ideal. You know, that's what brought me to this life. That's what keeps me in this life. <laughs> and keeps us all together. That beautiful ideal of being able to manifest that laughter and that love and that authenticity, that peace. And to do that, we've always got to keep our priorities straight, always got to remember what's important, always keep ourselves oriented. And we're going to go into those three things. One day I'll point at someone and ask them to do it for me. <laughs> but the most important thing, according to Thakur, to Ramakrishna, is that... Uh, you have sincerity and earnestness in your pursuit of truth. And he always reminds us, and I always remind myself, that if you have that sincerity and that earnestness that God says, he'll take care of the rest, that if you go out the door and you make a wrong turn, uh, that she'll make sure you get the proper turn back to, uh, toward your goal. So I commit that always to myself, and uh, I commit it to you this morning, and we can commit that to each other, to be earnest and to be sincere together this morning. The second one comes from Jesus, and it's second only in order, not, not in importance. Uh, it actually might be first in importance. When Jesus was being challenged by the religious uh, 
orthodoxy uh, as to who he was, and uh, they were trying to corner him so that they could have a reason to prosecute him and um, and close him down. And so they asked him directly, "Who are you? Uh, you know, or, or what is?" And they did ask him who he was too. Uh, that got him into big trouble. But the uh, second question they asked is, uh, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus looked at them and said, the most important commandment is to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so this commitment this morning includes that for one another, for us to commit to each other that authenticity and to commit to each other that love. To, uh, and, and, and how does that manifest? It, not just running around glad-handing and patting each other back and saying, I love you, <laughs> but, but seeing the highest in each other, not seeing each other's faults, but seeing each other's merits and trusting the same so that we can have an openness and a freedom with each other, that we can have a sharing so that this group of people can become a vehicle of encouragement to helping us with a very challenging task, a very difficult task of realizing our nature and escaping our ignorance. And the third is truth, uh, a commitment to truth. Uh, Ramakrishna was throwing out the pairs of opposites that exist in this world. Uh, That always brings up almost another lecture as to that whole idea of everything in this world is two opposites, rich, poor, you know, beautiful, ugly, fat, thin, whatever they are. And uh, he was throwing them away, trying to find that equanimity, that perfection in all things. And he went to throw away truth and untruth because he was throwing away the opposites and saying, you know, take these opposites, mother, and give me only pure love for you. And uh, when he tried to throw away truth, uh, mother wouldn't let him cast the other hand, the untruth. So he realized that that truth was fundamental. And uh, I keep giving a lot of thought to that idea because Ramakrishna also said that the truth is the austerity of this age, which is a very big statement, a big thing to say. That means there's got to be a lot more there than just telling the truth. And that truth, uh, so far, it seems to me that it's being in alignment with your nature, and your nature is that pure love, made in the image of God, made in the image of love. And so to act accordingly, check your deeds, check your thoughts, check your words, and make sure that they are true to your nature as being divine love that that manifestation can be ever more and more pure and less and less refracted with the idea of being a body-mind so that it's not selfish and, and self-centered. So with that, knowing that that's the important thing, we're going to talk about our relationship to mind. We're going to look at Takor as... Uh, now, I guess I should say up front, if anybody's new, uh, Ramakrishna is the ideal of this this temple, uh, but he's unique in the sense that he embodies every ideal. So we try and keep images of all the world's great teachers up, and you're welcome to superimpose your own ideals onto him. Uh, that was his ideal. He he taught people from many different backgrounds, from Christian backgrounds, from Muslim backgrounds, from uh, even Buddhistic backgrounds and whatnot. And uh, the, they say in the accounts of him that everybody who came to him thought he belonged to their own tradition. And so that's our ideal here. Uh, I don't know how well we do with it, but we're trying. So that everybody from any faith can feel comfortable here and find their ideal expressed here. And uh, I'll refer to Ramakrishna as as many things. The Master, Thakur, which I think means Papa or Dad, and uh, Ramakrishna. 
So don't be confused. I'm not talking about a dozen different people. And uh, Holy Mother, if you don't know, is here on, on Takor's left. Uh, uh, she was uh, his first disciple and is, is regarded by many to be uh, a direct manifestation of God as mother. And then Vivekananda, of course, on the other side, who brought all of this to the United States uh, in the late 1890s, early 1890s, I guess. So all that aside, uh, Ramakrishna had a beautiful relationship with his mind. He saw it as something separate from himself, and he talked to it quite regularly. And we've mentioned that before, this idea of what I call third-partying your mind when you're dealing with your faults or when you're trying to deal with your depression or you're dealing with your anger or whatnot. To, to put your mind on a tray, as it were, in your hand and then to sit there with your ideal with either Mother or Thakur or Buddha or Jesus and to, to look at the mind as a third party so that you don't have to feel that ownership, you don't have to take it personally and talk about it very clearly. Oh, look what I've been tied to. You know, look what I have to deal with on a daily basis. And uh, it, as a practice, to keep your image of your mind separate from your ideal of yourself, because in fact it is. The, the mind, as we've talked about before, is something you're looking through. It's not what you are. It's something that it's the tool with which you can navigate whatever this is we're navigating. And so uh, I was excited to find that, that Ramakrishna really... Uh, uh, lived that idea and really carried it out. He says here in, in one song that he's singing, he says, Cherish my precious mother Shyama tenderly within, O mind. May you and I alone behold her, letting no one else intrude. So we see that he had a secret world in himself where his mind, you and I, so he clearly saw that it was, that it was separate from himself. And his ideal was you and I, let's go see mother, let's go see God. And he lived his life accordingly like that. And it goes even farther. He goes on in another song. He says, be drunk, O mind. Be drunk with the wine of heavenly bliss. Roll on the ground and weep, chanting Hari's sweet name. Fill the arching heavens with your deep lion roar, singing Hari's sweet name. With both your arms upraised. Dance in the name of Hari and give his name to all. Swim day and night in the sea of the bliss of Hari's love. Slay desire with his name, and blessed be your life. I like this because I pulled out, it's a very small phrase, with both your arms upraised, which I thought, I always just assumed, you know, what everybody assumes, he's telling himself to dance with his arms up, which he is. But at the beginning of that first line, he, he's addressing his mind. So he also assigns, he's got a buffer between his body and himself. He's got the mind, and then he assigns the body and responsibility for it to his mind. So his mind is his body is even a step a step away. So he sees a you know he sees a he's broken it into three parts, and so he tells his mind not just here. We'll read some other verses if we get the time. Uh, gives advice to his mind to his own mind about how to handle the body, <laughs> how to bring it under control, or how to inspire it, or how to how to you know uh, keep it behaving itself. So I thought that was interesting in starting out that he goes out and, and first is established in that idea of a separate mind, something that's separate from himself, from his identity of who he is. Because, of course, the identity of who he is belonged to what? Satchitananda, that infinite self, that ever-present, ever-blissful, ever-content tranquility that is pure love, that needs nothing, that, had, that cannot be named. That was his identity. 
And then he understood there was mind that he was looking through. And through that mind, he could see his body. And through that mind, he could control that body. And he goes on, he says, Remember this, O mind, nobody is your own. Vain is your wandering in this world. Trapped in the subtle snare of Maya as you are, do not forget the mother's name. He takes it even farther there. You know, these verses, of course, <laughs> are for something else. You know, his Tagore's emphasis, of course, would be the fact that nobody is your own. Don't look for your comfort and your fulfillment in this world. But the way that he says it here, he says, trapped in the subtle snare of Maya as you are. Again, he's got that separation going on. He's not the one trapped here in this world. The mind is trapped in this world. And he's the teacher of his mind. And he's telling the mind, you know, do not forget mother's name. You know, hold on to mother's name. Don't be trapped in this world. He goes on, there's an account of Ramakrishna in, uh, I think it's from the great master. It might be the beginning of the gospel too, I'm not sure. It says, but Ramakrishna's large heart never turned away anyone. He said, let me be condemned to be born over and over again, even in the form of a dog, if I can be a help to a single soul. And he bore the pain, singing cheerfully, let the body be preoccupied with illness, but O mind, dwell forever in God's bliss. So we see how he used this truth in his last days when he was suffering. Uh, We'll get back to some more verses about that time in his life. But in the end, when he was laying there dying of that, that throat cancer, you know, uh, one of the, his direct disciples says, no, he never did suffer because he understood that that was over there and he was over here, that there was a real separation and it was a choice for him. And he would say this, let the body be preoccupied with illness, but oh mind, you dwell forever in God's bliss. So he had another place that he could go. And that's a, that's a real key for us when we suffer, you know, when we're, when we're, going through whatever. I remember breaking my leg. I've told that story. <laughs> and uh, laying there on, the, on, that, on that couch. And, you know, when you're confronted with something like that, you've got weird choices at hand. You know, you're sitting there in a lot of pain, and you can't move anywhere for months. And, you know, how much reading can you do? <laughs> and you sit there. And it was in the monastery, so there was no TV, and there wasn't any radio. So it was pretty much just sitting and staring at the ceiling, you know, for, for a good few weeks. And uh, it was a time for practicing this kind of view. Because that pain was pretty intoxicating. I mean, it was pretty horrendous. And you have to find a way to buffer that. You have to find a way to do away with that. And through, through playing, really, at the time, because what kind of yogi was I really? It was a, Brahmachari at that time. And uh, I was just kind of playing with ideas like, okay, well, how does that work? Because I had heard of the direct disciples being able to have surgery with, you know, no, no anesthetic. And I've heard stories of other, uh, you know, holy people in India who have that ability. And so, you know, I wanted to toy. <laughs> I was desperate, actually. I wanted to toy with anything. But that was the idea, to give that distance. And, you know, I can't say that my pain went away, that I could actually forget it. But the fact that I had something else that I could put my mind on, somewhere else to go, I understood the nature of it. You know, and I learned at that point how it was that my mother, growing up, could be talking to me 
and I could only hear the television, you know, <laughs> as it was going on. Because it's selective, right? You get to choose what goes into the mind. You get to choose what's, what senses you're going to connect to. And to become conscious of that, you can use it in a great way. But you have to understand that separation. You have to understand that there's you, that infinite self. You're looking through a mind. And on the other side of that mind is the body. And so that body's not directly connected to you. You're not forced to suffer through it. You can put it in its place, and it can be managed by the mind however you want it to be managed. So to use that and to take that home with you, because it's very useful for dealing with a lot of stuff that we're dealing with these days. I hear a lot about depression from folks, and this is a key to overcoming depression and being able to manage depression, to take these practices home and to think about them when, you, when you're in, in that dark place, <laughs> you know, when you're in that zone, you're sitting there and the world collapses on you. To realize, no, the world didn't collapse on me. I just watched it collapse on my mind. You know, that's manageable. I'm untouched. I'm ever free. I'm ever pure. Ever blissful. And so you can navigate things in life by this. Takur, as I as you read all of these verses, now I had I had mind you eight eight pages of verses, and I I've, I've managed to get it down to six. But the longest lecture I ever gave, I only managed to cover three pages. So <laughs> we're probably not going to get all the way through this. But when you read through all of these scriptures where Takur is talking to himself, he has a wonderful relationship with mind. It's a distinct relationship. It's not just a concept for him. He actually befriends the mind. He actually tests the mind. He actually you know, uh, invites the mind to try different things. He sets up, uh, sets up uh, you know, tricks for the mind, tests to see where it's at. He gives it warnings. He gives it advice. And uh, it's, it's a really, it, you know, in one sense, it's kind of an odd idea because you wonder, gosh, is, <laughs> is that how you become schizophrenic, you know, <laughs> breaking yourself into pieces like that, distinct pieces? But it's not, of course, because he just had that one mind that he was working with. But... You know, a wonderful thing. Here, he's going in this poem, he's inviting his mind to go for a walk. He's saying, Come, let us go for a walk, O mind, to Kali, that wish-fulfilling tree. And there beneath it gather the four fruits of life. Of your two wives, dispassion and worldliness, bring along dispassion only on your way to the tree, and ask her son discrimination about the truth. You see, interestingly here, we're going to get quite a bit here of exactly through this idea of this companion, this mind, he's giving it two wives now, dispassion and worldliness, two things that that mind has to deal with, has to live with. What our minds have to live with, this tendency toward worldliness, going out through the senses, finding our bliss through, through the passions, and then this other, this other mind where, that goes inward, that finds that contentment within, finds that strength within. And we've got those two things, those two wives, and those two wives don't get along. <laughs> They're always bickering with each other. And so he's saying, let's go for a walk, leave the, leave what, the worldly wife, leave wife worldliness at home, and take, and, but bring along uh, uh, your wife dispassion, and uh, let's talk to her son, uh, named Discrimination, about the truth. When will you learn to lie, O oh mind, in the abode of blessedness, with cleanliness and defilement on either side of you, only when you have found the way to keep these wives contentedly under a single roof will you behold the matchless form of Mother Shyama. So he sees the task of the mind. He's got these two, you've got these two wives, you know, in your mind, or these two husbands, 
<laughs> and you've got to get them to get along. You've got to learn to live under a single tree together. All, all three of you have to find peace. And so it's about that companionship. It's about that dance of finding out how, where is the unity in this situation? Where is, the, where is the perspective that I can stand looking through mind where I can see that oneness, where I can see harmony in all these things, a lens through which that worldliness and that, that uh, dispassion become united, become harmonious, are no longer a problem. Then he goes on. So we've got, a, we've got two wives for our mind. Now we're going to find out who the mind's parents are. What brings us the mind? Ego and ignorance, your parents, instantly banish them from your sight. And should delusion seek to drag you to its hole, manfully cling to the pillar of patience. Tie to the post of unconcern the goats of vice and virtue, killing them with the sword of knowledge if they rebel. All right, we're getting a little bit of violence here, but it's it's ahimsa violence. <laughs> violence for a right cause. So the parents of your mind, the reason that your mind exists, the thing that brought your mind into, into existence is this sense of ego, uh, which you bring with you in the general sense, one of the, that satchitananda, you know, that, that, that existence absolute. That you bring into the picture, but it's a generalized existence. You are existence itself. You're not a particular of existence. But when that notion of existence itself comes in contact with a particular or comes in very close proximity to a particular, boom, that magic happens. That, that, that ignorance bonds the two or makes them appear bond, bound together. And from that assumption of the existence of the particular comes ego. So you've got ego, and that is ignorance. From that ego, you, the whole world actually becomes ignorance at that point because you're standing in a, in a non-tenable place. You're standing in a perspective that doesn't exist. You, you as a particular, you as a point of perspective. And from that point, you've got left and right, you've got up and down, all of that's ignorance. Everything that you describe of God that you're looking at, of that which you see, from that perspective of ego, is going to be ignorant. So those are the parents of mind, ego and ignorance. And he's saying, banish them from your sight. All right. Not usually the way you treat your parents, but in this case, <laughs> in this case, if you had a parent named ego and a parent named ignorance, it would be a good idea to banish them from your sight. And should delusion seek to drag you to its hole, manfully cling to the pillar of patience. That's an interesting idea. That when, when this mind gets pulled into that world, you know, gets pulled into that ignorance, into that delusion, when you really think that you need to have that particular thing for your happiness, when you really think that this circumstance is going to be better than that circumstance for your contentment, when you get dragged into that hole, you're standing aside, you're watching that. And you don't, you don't get angry, you don't you know, insult yourself, you don't pull yourself down. He says, no, watch that fight, see it from your perspective of what you are, separate and apart. Watch it and be patient. Be patient with yourself. You know, ahimsa goes even to that realm, to the realm of how you deal and work with your own nature, work with your own mind. You, know, you don't have to be overcome with disappointment. You don't have to be overcome with frustration. You don't have to be drawn into the fight at all. Be patient with yourself, he says. 
Tie to the post of unconcern the goats of vice and virtue. So lift yourself above. Again, that whole idea of the virtue, vice and virtue, he gives an unreality to them. Why? Because they belong to ignorance. They belong to, to that point that, of perspective that you've attached your, ex, your notion of existence to. So from that perspective only, from that point only, from that, that, that mistake that you've made by thinking that your existence was particular, from that, that mistake come the idea of virtue and vice, that those are the same, the same coin seen from two different sides. And he's saying, stand aloof from them. Tie them to the post of unconcern. Get, put them over there. Don't get overly freaked out by where you think yourself to be. That's part of the ignorance. You know, when you begin to measure yourself by your virtue and your vice, it's like, no, don't do that. You know, on that scale, as long as you have that sense of lower self, virtue and vice are always going to be divided. You're always going to have some of this and some of that because it's, that's not the problem. The problem is that mistake that you've made about who you are and what you are. So he says, tie to that post of unconcern. Kill them with the sword of knowledge if they rebel. So if they won't let you go, if you can't let go of it, then use knowledge. What is that knowledge, capital K? The knowledge, I'm ever free, I'm ever pure, I'm ever blessed. I'm love itself. Remind yourself and exert that so that it permeates your ignorance. It permeates that and, and makes it begin to rattle so that it can collapse one day. Collapse and you not be attached to it. Now he says here, he's, he, we, we brought the son of, of, uh, of the first wife, Dispassion, uh, her son, Discrimination. He's come with us to the temple, to the wish-fulfilling tree. And he says, with the children of worldliness, that, that the other wife that didn't get invited, but he says, who is your first wife? Plead from a goodly distance. And if they will not listen, <laughs> and if they will not listen, drown them in wisdom's sea, <laughs> says Ram Prasad. If you do as I say, you can submit a good account, O oh mind, to the king of death. And I shall be well pleased with you and call you my darling. So he's not, he's not, he's not in a wishy-washy state here. He's, pretty, uh, he's drawing a line in the sand. <laughs> he's saying that, that, you know, that this, this wife of worldliness, uh, you know, uh, that you've got to plead with her from a goodly distance. Don't get too close to her because she'll just... You know, she's the most needy wife you'll ever have. She will give you no liberty, the most needy husband. I wish there was a word I could put. We actually need a word for both nowadays, I guess, in one. A shusband. (laughs) So your shusband, your shusband of worldliness, you should talk to to them from a distance. Keep, Keep a separation between you, you know. Don't get too close because, why? Because... They're needy. They, that, that worldliness thinks that, that you're all that they have and that you are going to make them happy. And any time you think somebody else is going to make you happy, you've got a real relationship problem going on there. That relationship's not long for this world. So he's saying, talk to her, and if she, if she doesn't listen, drown her. <laughs> drown her in wisdom's See, be wise. Know that there's no value to that relationship. Don't, don't be pulled down by it. Don't, don't get lost in that, in that sea. And if you do this, then you will find your bliss. You will find your freedom. 
So that's the walk. <laughs> a walk where you banish your parents, you drown one of your wives, and, uh, <laughs> and, and tie up the kids to a post over out of the way. That's, <laughs> that's what it takes. But that's his relationship with his mind. That's how he saw clearly what needed to be done, what the task at hand was. He understood, you know, you go through, uh, uh, what's that book, uh, Vedanta Sara. And Vedanta Sara really lays out all of these relationships in a more mathematical or, you know, physics-oriented kind of way. Thakur brings them alive, you know, making them relationships and people and whatnot, and, but shows you how to navigate, how to be successful in getting there so that you can sit with your beloved you can sit with your divine like Hafiz and become nourishment to the whole world, become a servant of all, a lover of all, a person who sees the highest ideal in those around him. So now you've gone to the wish-fulfilling tree, or he's gone, Takur has gone to the wish-fulfilling tree with his mind. Now he's got another poem, and they're going to go back home. <laughs> he says, let us go back once more, O mind, to our proper home. Here in this foreign land of earth, why should we wander aimlessly in a stranger's guise? These living beings round about, and the five elements, they're strangers to you, all of them. None of them are your own. Why do you forget yourself in love with strangers, O foolish mind? Why do you so forget your own? Mount the path of truth, O mind unflaggingly climb with love as the lamp to light your way. As your provision on the journey, take with you the virtues hidden carefully. For like two highwaymen, greed and delusion wait to rob you of your wealth and keep beside you constantly as guards to shelter you from harm, calmness of mind and self-control. Companionship with holy men will be for you a welcome rest house by the road. There, rest your weary limbs a while asking your way. If ever you should be in doubt of him who watches there, if anything along the path should cause you fear, then loudly shout the name of God, for he is the ruler of that road, and even death must bow to him. So he's got his companion. He's bringing the companion. His, his job is to bring his companion safely through this world to home, to that place, and he's asking his mind, you know, quite often, whenever we go into a Q&A session, question and answers, we always talk in terms of I, right? We're always so caught up in like, oh, I can't get anywhere. Why don't I have any success? Why can't I see God? Why can't I, you know, meditate? Why can't I do any of this? And in this scenario here, Takur is not like that. Takur is not owning all of that. He's got his ideas established. This is what I am. I am that, ever pure, ever free, ever blissful self. He doesn't let go of that. That's, on his, that's, that's in his consciousness every moment of every day. And it should be for us also. We should firmly establish that distance between us and the mind. And when we talk about the faults that we're experiencing in this world, when we talk about the delusions and the ignorance that we're experiencing in this world, we should stop using the word I, and we should talk properly about it, like Takwar is teaching us. The mind is weary. The mind is deluded. The mind is restless. The mind is whatever you want to complain about. It's not yours. It's not you. You are its guide. You're its big brother. You're its companion. 
And your job is to coach it and coax it along, to bring it home, to its proper home. And when it goes and it tries to go wandering off aimlessly after this thing or that thing, call it out like he does. He says, these are strangers to you, all of them. None of them are your own. Why do you forget yourself? Why are you falling in love with strangers, O foolish mind? Why do you so forget your own, those things that are yours, that ever-blissful nature that resides within, that pure contentment that needs nothing through the senses to be happy, that's within? Unfortunately, you know, so many of us, we spend most of our lives without even knowing that that's within. You know, we've, got our, we've got our eyes to the goggles looking out through the senses so firmly we have never taken them off to realize that we're in the room with, with the beloved, with the divine, with divinity itself. We've never experienced it. We think it's something that we can't touch, that we can't find. Why? Because we've particularized it into a thousand different things, a thousand different names, and we suffer. Oh, God, we suffer again and again and again and over and over, needlessly, needlessly because we haven't pulled our eyes away. Just for a moment, pull your eyes away from the senses. Turn around and look within. Find those gems. The mind is your disciple. So Thakur takes his mind and he teaches it directly. And that's your instruction. That's what you need to do. You know, when you're sitting in a class, it's not you that's being taught. It's not that you need to learn anything. Your mind needs to learn something. You need to establish that distance and teach that mind. Watch where its ignorances are. Watch and see what its problems are. In The Great Master, we've got this. This is a little bit of a personal story, but Takor put it in The Great Master, so I assumed he doesn't mind me sharing it with you. It says, on another occasion, seeing the Holy Mother. So Takor Ramakrishna is in his room with his wife in bed together, and she's asleep. He's awake, and he's sitting there. And it says, seeing the Holy Mother asleep by his side, the master addressed his own mind and started discriminating. This is, O oh mind, a female body. Look upon it as an object of great enjoyment, or people look upon it as an object of great enjoyment, a thing highly prized, and they die for enjoying it. But if one goes for it, one has to remain confined in the body and cannot realize God, who is ever-existent ever knowledge and bliss. Do not, O oh mind, harbor one thought within and contrary, and a contrary attitude without. Okay, that's that truth we're talking about. Don't hold an ideal inside, but live a different one on the outside. He says, if you want it, it's here before you. You can have it. All right? No big stress, no big deal, no huge ah, angst moment, you know. This world is here. If you want it, you can have it, but don't do it in ignorance. Know what the price for these goods are. He says, you know, he says that, that if you go for it, one has to remain confined in the body and cannot realize God who is existence, knowledge, and bliss. So it's impossible, he says, if you're going to go for these things in the world, these things that, that, that you feel as attractions through the senses, he says, go. It's, not a, not a huge deal, not a huge thing that you have to get, ah, just be very straightforward with yourself. You're, you've got an either-or situation. 
You know, it's not that, that there's a third-party God out there that's going to judge you and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and make you feel horrible about it. That's not what's going on. It's your nature. Your nature is to love freely, openly, not particular, not because of anything, but because it's your nature. And when you go for the particular as you're, as you're grasping at love, when you go for the particular, you always suffer. You always suffer. In this case, he's, he's, sitting, he's laying there next to the Divine Mother, and he's considering her as a particular, as a woman, and not as the Divine Mother as he always did, you know, not giving her that honor, but seeing her as a particular. And he's contemplating the feelings that are in the body, you know, the longing for those things, the ideas that the mind attaches to those things that make them attractive. And he's saying, you can go for that, you can have that, but understand, you can't have this Divine Bliss you can't have this unending contentment if you depend on temporary things to give you your contentment. They will always end. You will grow old. She will grow old. One or both of you will die. Those enjoyments will have their end. They won't always feed you. And if you spend your, your youth, you know, you spend the days when your body is healthy and attractive, if you spend your youth running after those things and, and cultivating those skills and those ideals, where will that leave you when you're 70 or 200, just to be safe, <laughs> so I don't offend anybody? When you're 200, where will, that, where will that serve you if you've spent all of your time going after those things in your life when you can't have them anymore because nobody's interested in a 200-year-old person, you know? Nobody sees you as their ideal anymore. There's nothing attractive about you, you know, except your wallet at that point, perhaps. <laughs> so think about that, because that's the hole we dig for ourselves if we choose to go after those things. So he's saying, but be true to yourself, okay? He says, you've got, that's where this truth becomes, becomes the sadhana of this age, becomes the austerity of this age. Don't say inside that you want God and then on the outside run after the senses. He says that's going to be, an, that's even worse. If you take it in, in full consciousness, yes, I'm making this decision, I'm making this choice clearly and openly right now, I want this more than I want this, at least there's honesty there and learning can happen in that place because then you'll see the, the pluses and minuses as they happen to you as you are allowed to keep your discrimination turned on so that you can keep your eyes open to how this is affecting you. If it's done in honesty and it's done straightforwardly, you can learn from it. If, in fact, you jump into it, though, and you, you're saying one thing inside, oh, I, I want this, I want this, but you're going toward that, that split vision will keep you from learning. And the delusion gets worse because you have to become slightly unconscious of the fact that you're lying, <laughs> that you're not of one mind, you've split. You know, that integrity is not there anymore. So you have to know this. Say in truth whether you want to have it or to have God. If you want it, it's there before you, have it. He discriminated this way, but scarcely had he entertained in his mind the idea of touching the person of Holy Mother when his mind shrank and at once lost itself so deeply in samadhi that it did not regain its normal consciousness that night. He had to be brought back with great effort to normal consciousness the next morning by the repeated utterance of the name of God in his ears. That's the fruit 
of having an authentic mind, an authentic mind that's not split two ways. When you make the decision for God, bang, (laughs) you're lost into samadhi until morning. No more struggle. When you've got that kind of clarity and that kind of unity in your thought, that kind of discrimination happening inside, that's why the Viveka Chudamani calls out the perfect student, you know, with these incredible qualities of perfection. Because that student, when he sits down there, when the guru bends over and whispers in his ear and says, thou art that, boom, done. That's all he needed was that knowledge of the self. And because of our inauthenticity, inauthenticity of the mind, because of, because of this, this lack of clarity that, that we have in our relationship with mind, we hear that how many times a week? Thou art that, thou art that, thou art that. And I'm still sitting here like, okay. <laughs> Where is it happening? Where is it? So it's that important uh, that, we, that we have that kind of attitude toward ourselves. Now we're talking, he's, we're, we're changing scenes here. So that's one scene where his mind is his disciple and he's making a lesson of life, a, a situation that's in front of him. Very good thing to do. So take that when you're in the office and you know situation A, B, or C comes up. Make it a lesson. Turn and talk to your mind and say, these are your choices here. You can go that way. You're welcome to do it. But no, if you go that way, you're not going to get the fruits of this way. Sit there and decide, honestly. Don't lie, don't split, don't close your eyes and become half-conscious so that you can get away with your vice again. Stay conscious, stay clear, and make that choice in clarity and go forward with it. So now we're looking back at another time when he was, again, on his deathbed. And uh, the writer in in the great master says, yet one is not sure whether the master's soul actually was tortured by this agonizing disease, at least during his moments of spiritual exaltation, which became almost constant during the closing days on his life on earth. He lost all consciousness of the body, of illness and suffering. One of his attendants, Latu, later known as Swami Adbhutananda, said later on, while Sri Ramakrishna lay sick, he never actually suffered pain. He would often say, O mind, forget the body, forget the sickness, and remain merged in bliss. No, he did not really suffer. At times he would be in a state when the thrill of joy was clearly manifesting in his body. That's the fruit of a life well lived. You know, when you're laying there in your deathbed, perhaps in a great deal of pain, you know, all those thoughts of all the things that you might be leaving behind, you know, your children, your wives, your friends, your money, your house, whatever it is that you've invested this life in, and you're laying there in those last moments watching it all go, watching it slip through your fingers. If you live by these principles, you can say to the mind, forget those things. Come, let us be absorbed in bliss. Let us be absorbed in the divinity of being." And be free. Go to your proper home, as that song said that we just listened to. Return to your proper home. Another scenario. Greed, delusion, etc. The dacoits, they rob the traveler of everything. This is why I say, O mind, let the two, 
the control of internal organs and that of external ones, keep watch. When you are tired, stay in the rest house of holy company, and when you lose your way, ask it of those who stay there. If you find any cause of fear on your way, appeal to the king with all your might. The king wields great power there, before whom death quails in terror. So he's giving us another, of course this one's kind of a higher teaching for his mind, where he just he's just giving it over to the mind. He's saying, okay, to to avoid those dacoits, to avoid those thieves, you know, lust and greed and whatnot that are on the way. He says, just let the internal organs and the external organs, your, let your senses and your and the receptors of those sentences, those senses in your mind. Let them be. Let them be at peace. Let them be in control. Let them be as they are. Don't attach them to anything. Don't let them run wild. Don't let them get out of control. So he tells his mind immediately when he's confronted with those things, no, return to your control. And if that control is making you tired, if you feel like you can't do this anymore, you've resisted, you know, vice X for <laughs> nine days. You're like, oh my God, I can't do a tenth one. He says, then go find some holy company. Go take some rest. View this place as your rest. You know, come and, and, and take a break with, with like-minded people, people who are open to being loving and caring and encouraging. Come and spend time with people who are committed to seeing your merits and the best in you. Come and spend time with people who are dreaming the same ideal of finding that truth within. And take a break. And if you're afraid on that way, if anything causes you fear, call out, yell out God's name. Because what are you doing when you do that? You're causing a stir back to that self. You know, In the beginning of the path, we're calling out to a third party, to a big God somewhere else. But as you get nearer to home, you're calling out to yourself to remind yourself of your nature. This is my nature. Stand up. Get up. Be strong. Don't be afraid. Don't be a coward. There's no need to fear. You make the decisions here. Nobody else is making them for you. All of the power lies within you. If you keep the power out there and divide it, you know, this being is responsible for bad and this being is responsible for good and I'm just in the middle, you're always a victim, either a victim of good or a victim of bad, but always a victim nonetheless. In Takura's paradigm, you're free, ever free, because thou art that. He says, once the idea came to me to put on a very expensive robe embroidered with gold and to smoke a silver hubble bubble. <laughs> Matur, Babel, Matur Babu sent me the new robe and a hubble bubble. I put on the robe. I also smoked the hubble bubble in various fashions. I can see him. Try this hand, reclining, all those different things. Sometimes I smoked a reclining this way, and sometimes I reclined that way, and sometimes with my head up, and sometimes with my head down. And then I said to myself, oh mind, this is what they call smoking a silver hubble bubble. Immediately I renounced it. I kept the robe on my body a few minutes longer and then took it off. I began to trample it underfoot and to spit on it, saying, so this is an expensive robe, but it only increases Man's rajas, man, man's delusion. 
So he takes his mind out and lets it try some things, you know, something simple like, you know, okay, you want to smoke a silver Hubble bubble. I, I don't even, I barely know what that is, <laughs> but cool. If you want to give that a try, you know, I don't know what, what, what would be an, an, uh, an equivalent, but your simple desires, those things that just nag, oh, I want the latest tablet, you know, I've got to have that new Inspirion or whatever it is or whatever you need. He says, okay, mind, you don't just have to immediately slap and say no and nah. you can. If you're at that place where you can just let go of something and not have it nag you, then, then say no and don't let it have you nag you. But if your mind isn't controlled to that place where you can just not be nagged by it, let it try something. Okay, let's go buy this new tablet. Do it with purpose and with clarity. And watch, keep your mind active and aware every step in the process so that you can learn why would the scriptures tell you not to go running after these things. And you can learn for yourself and you can get the experience under your belt so that the next time you're like, you can say, eh, and let it go without nagging you. You can learn from that. I learned this in an expensive way long before I was interested in spiritual life at all, actually. I used to pass this store, the Bang & Olufsen store on Union Square in San Francisco, and they have these fantastic stereos, <laughs> beautiful stereos that are all, you know, this is back in the 90s. They were touch-sensitive even back then. I mean, they were cool and very expensive. And I would always stand there like a kid in a candy store just staring at that window like, oh, wow, that is so cool. And I'd always go in, and I would touch them all, you know, and make their doors open by waving at them and stuff. I'm like, oh, my God, if I only had that thing. And then I got my job. I got my, my job and a little bit of a promotion, and I suddenly could afford one of these things. So I went down there uh, one afternoon to buy it. I was so excited. I mean, this, I thought this one was going to be great. <laughs> and I bought that thing, and I had to call a taxi because I took the bus down there. I had to call a taxi to take this thing back to my house. I took it back to my house. I unboxed it. Everything was fantastic. I, mean, I set it on the. I, I bought a special Corinthian column. <laughs> Horrible taste, I know. I bought it. Thing. I set this Bang & Olufsen thing on there. And I sat there on my bed, and I looked at it. And I was like, man, that is so cool. And I went over, and I waved my hand in front, and the glass doors split. You know, those smoked glass doors silently opened. I took my CD and mounted it vertically, <laughs> not, not horizontally like the peons have to do. I could do mine vertically. Popped it in there, waved out at it, the doors, slid silently shut, began spinning, and sound. Oh, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I sat there, and I was listening to my, the song, and I was like, that's all it does. <laughs> that's, that's all this thing does. It plays music. And, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't discriminating or anything at the time. I was genuinely just, like, came to the realization that I, for the last year I've been going to the window of that store and standing there and gazing at this thing and thinking, I needed that, I wanted that, that's beautiful, it's gorgeous. And now I have it, and I look at it, and I'm like, it plays music. That's all it does in a really cool way, lots of little stuff my friends are going to love it but after they've all seen it for the first time they're not going to care anymore about it i got a lesson i learned you know in a weird way i learned immediately that these things are like that and uh, here i see the master telling us yes that's the way to do it pay attention watch every step keep yourself clear know the choices you're making and know what the price is and the, and and 
the return are on each of them. Watch closely, and the world becomes your teacher. The world becomes your teacher. So make your mind your disciple. His instructions to his mind. I'll do this, and then we'll close. The master sang, Cry to your mother, Shyama, with a real cry, O mind. And how can she hold herself from you? How can she stay away? How can your mother Kali hold herself away? O mind, if you are in earnest, then bring her an offering, an offering of bell leaves or hibiscus flowers, and lay at her feet your offering, and with it mingle the fragrant sandal paste of love. The master sang in a sweet voice that had bewitched the hearts of the devotees. The master sang, Dive deep, O mind. Dive deep in the ocean of God's beauty. If you descend to the uttermost depths, there you will find that gem of love. Go seek, O mind. Go seek Brindavan in your heart, where with his loving devotees Sri Krishna sports eternally. Light up, O mind. Light up true wisdom's shining lamp, and let it burn with a steady flame unceasingly within your heart. Who is it that steers your boat across the solid earth? It is your guru, says Kabir. Meditate on his holy feet. So we've got Thakur bringing his mind in a line and now pointing it in a positive direction. He lets it try a few things going in the direction of the senses with clarity and open eyes, awareness, seeing and learning. And when the mind then kind of withdraws a little bit from that, realizing, God, it just plays music. That's all it does. Everything in this world is just a combination of five, a play of five senses. It can't do anything else. It can only titillate five senses. And when you get tired of those combinations, when the mind starts looking around, the first feeling, if it's never looked inward, the first feeling is depression. The first feeling's, oh my God, there's nothing here for me. And you come to that false conclusion, there's nothing, there's nothing here. And you're left alone. At that time, you turn to your mind and you say, no mind, go seek Brindaban. Seek that holy city of God in your own heart. Turn inward. Light up the lamp inside. Find that flame. What is it that's making you breathe? What's, what's giving you life? Find it. Sit with that. Just in that silent space within. Light up that lamp and sit there and find love. Meditating on the feet of your teachers. This world has taught you this. This world has brought you to your true home when you saw it clearly and properly. Find it there. Dwell within yourself, O mind, and enter no other home. If you but seek there, you will find all you are searching for. Tell your mind that. Mind, mind, no, not now. Don't don't think about those things. Come in here. Come in here. Sit down with me. Here is everything that we need. Everything that you're searching for is here. God, that true philosopher's stone who answers every prayer, lies hidden deep within your heart, the richest gem of all. How many pearls, how many precious stones are scattered all about this outer court that lies before the chamber of your heart. So take that friend of yours, your companion, the mind. Sit it down. And enjoy the bliss of the divine and understand that you sit on an endless supply of love. 
and then turn around back to the world that you've renounced and embrace it as a servant, as a giver, as someone who can love because now they know where that love is. An endless source that can inspire a very thirsty and a very hungry world. Hafi says, as soon as you opened your mouth and I heard your soft sounds, I knew we would be friends. The first time, dear pilgrim, that I heard you laugh, I knew that it would not take long to turn you back into God. Let's take a moment and sit with our companion.